Welcome to Anthropod. I'm Catherine Sacco. And I'm Tariq Rahman. And today we're bringing you the third and final installment of our series around ethnography and design, which builds on conversations from a conference held at the University of California, San Diego last fall, uh, entitled Ethnography and Design Mutual Provocations. In this last episode, Tariq and I interviewed Lily Arani, who is an assistant professor of communication and science studies at the University of California, San Diego. Right, and this interview offered an opportunity to provide yet another fascinating intersection between design and ethnography uh, by talking to someone who is trained in design but also engages in ethnographic work. Um, so our conversation with Lily ranged from a platform she designed called Turk Opticon, which is a digital labor activism tool, to her new book project, which focuses on the relationship between entrepreneurship and design in the context of India. So first, we're going to play a short clip from the talk that Lily gave at the conference, and then we'll jump into the interview we did with her. So... In terms of writing technoculture, what this database did was it was a database of complaints. If someone said, well, I hear workers are really happy because they get all this flexibility to do data work at home, or I hear workers are happy because they can just do this for fun, or they can do this because they're interested in helping with scientific research. Tricopticon was a place where workers were saying, I didn't get paid, my employers didn't uh, communicate with me. Um, as an archive of complaints, it interrupted the narrative of this form of work as a celebratory, flexible uh, gig economy where everyone's just collaborating in flat structures. So Lily, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We're really looking forward to the conversation. Um, we thought that we could start off with talking a little bit about your work on Turk Opticon. So I think this is a really fascinating project where You've acted as both a designer and a scholar of design and designers. Um, to get us started, could you just explain a little bit about what Turkopticon is? Okay, to explain to you what Turkopticon is, I should probably explain a little bit about Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is the site of work that Turkopticon kind of plugs into. So uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk is a website that Amazon operates, and what it does is it allows people who have huge amounts of data processing that they need to do, like programmers who do artificial intelligence, uh, journalists who have audio transcriptions to do, uh, companies that need receipts transcribed. These are all tasks that are really hard for AI to do, but are things that people are fairly skilled at if they know how to use a computer, things like data entry, things like identifying whether there's a chair in this picture or not, or whether there's, this is a couch or an ottoman in this photo, these kinds of things. Really hard for AI to do. So um, as we've seen a rise in machine learning and AI technologies, programmers need a place to access people as temporary workers who can do a bunch of data processing. And then they use the data processing, they use the ways that people categorize data to then train their algorithms or to input those classified forms of data into computer systems. So Amazon Mechanical Turk is a place where workers can show up and for like five cents a task or um, a dollar a survey, do individual bits of work that can be fed into someone's information system somewhere. Uh, when this system first came out, uh, there was a lot of hype in the tech community about 
what an amazing new form of computation this is and the new magical technologies that this will allow Silicon Valley to invent for us all. And then on the other side, there are a lot of scholars, maybe coming from Marxist media studies traditions who are talking about the ways that the system is exploitative uh, in much the ways that capitalism is exploitative, but this is sort of a new a new form where now you can do piecework from your house, going back to some kind of cottage industry uh, format, but you can do it online and you can do it for Silicon Valley. And this seems new and weird and particularly conflicting with Silicon Valley's image that it presents itself of itself to the world. So kind of between these two stories, um, you know, I was in a PhD program that was a, called Informatics. It's about understanding social and cultural implications of computing. And my friend Six, who's a colleague, uh, he was in a master's program that was very similar. And we were being brought up on a diet of Donna Haraway, staying with the trouble, asking what kinds of humans and machines are being formed in these configurations. And I was also really influenced by the work of Lucy Sechman. So we just wanted to do a really simple thing, which is ask, how do workers feel about this kind of work? <laughs> that's been invented to feed this industry. So I put some surveys on Amazon Mechanical Turk and I asked people, you know, why do you do this work? What do you like about this work? What do you not like about this work? Um, and I read those responses and um, then I wanted to get a little bit more speculative. And so I asked, uh, put up a survey on Mechanical Turk asking if you could have a worker's bill of rights uh, what would it be? Because Amazon actually has terms and conditions that are very pro-employer. Workers come into this system in a sort of take-it-or-leave-it form. Like, the price is set, and if the employer takes your work and doesn't pay for it, that's tough for you. So we wanted to ask, well, what would you like this system to work more like? And uh, people said a lot of things, some of which some of which were contradictory. Like some people wanted unions and minimum wage, and some people absolutely did not want unions. They'd had bad experiences with them in the past. But one of the things people agreed on is that it's way too easy for employers to take their work and not pay them for this power that the Amazon platform gives. And uh, they wanted a way to make that harder for employers to actually like have employers have consequences. And so Six and I built the system Tricopticon that lets workers basically add reviews for employers that they meet on Amazon Mechanical Turk and easily share those reviews with other workers. So if a worker is looking at a list of potential employers on the website, what Tricopticon does is insert a button next to every single employer's name and the Mechanical Turk worker can click on that button, see reviews other workers have written for that employer, and make a decision based on that employer's past behavior towards other workers. So that is what Tricopticon does. Awesome. Um, so you've alluded to some of this so far, um, but I, I was curious about how your experience as a researcher um, coming at your projects from the perspective of both, um, say, an ethnographer and a designer um, has played out. And I'm thinking particularly about your work of designing Turk Opticon as well as your participation in hackathons. And 
how this is this has affected your perspective of design and how those experiences have maybe uh, changed the way you look at design. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, so hackathons and Tricopticon are really, really different kinds of technological engagements in one sense. You know, a hackathon is people getting together over just a few days to intensely work together and then they can produce a demo that seems like a promise of technology to come. Whether anything happens afterwards, who maintains that technology, how it's implemented is sort of anybody's guess. It's not really part of the institutionalization of hackathons. Uh, Tricopticon, by contrast, it came out of something like a hackathon in the sense that Six and I were in a class, we proposed some designs, and then we sat around for a couple of really intense days over a winter break and built the thing. But we've also been maintaining the thing for 10 years. <laughs> you know, we pay for the server space. There's workers who moderate in the system, uh, give us, tell us when there's bugs and issues, and we don't do nearly a good enough job of being able to fix those bugs in a timely fashion because it's all kind of based on volunteer labor. Um, so if hackathons are about fast, intense productions of promises, Tricopticon is about the slow, inadequate, accountable, but always kind of not having enough resources, maintenance and care for a technological system. Um, and this is not something that I think about alone in the petri dish of my own projects, but uh, one of my colleagues, Marissa Cohn at IT University of Denmark, she's done a project on a space research orbiter that goes around one of the planets in the solar system. And this orbiter was supposed to last for 10 years. It's lasted for 30, way longer than anyone thought. And so she's been dedicating her work of writing to chronicling the care work for these long-lived systems and how do you care for a system as, as it's dying. And her work is really also about telling a kind of technological story that doesn't fit in narratives of innovation and um, design being the kind of initiating and planning process. So I've been thinking about Tricopticon uh, in relation to a bunch of critical projects around innovation. Um, I think one of the things that's come out of that is this way of narrating Mechanical Turk as part of a larger knowledge economy formation and thinking about the narratives people tell about that labor and the limitations of those narratives. Um, so rewriting Mechanical Turk workers' work, not just as the work they do to do the data processing, but also the work they do behind the scenes to like run forums, to bring new workers in, uh, to report problems with tasks to their employers. It's kind of like an invisible managerial labor. That re-narration of mechanical Turk work um, has been one outcome of thinking about the longer, slower, messier ecology of labor that is required to make any technological system actually mean anything to us. Um, I think another outcome of it has been, for me, thinking through the limitations of how science and technology research gets funded. You know, National Science Foundation, on-campus grant uh, giving agencies, venture capitalists, all these things are built around initiating and seeding the new. Nobody wants to pay for maintenance and care. So there's a way where 
this seems like the neoliberalization of the university and that we have the erosion of care for infrastructures. That's a much bigger topic, right? Our bridges are crumbling. But I actually think it's older than neoliberalism. And this is something Elizabeth Popperman has also written about it because it comes out of a story about what we think is important about technology, which is the invention moment and not the maintenance and repair moments. Um, so that dates back to like the 1960s, the National Science Foundation Pop Berman tells us that you know, the National Science Foundation is all about investing in technologies to create productivity gains. Uh, so they're interested in like new forms of technology that could make the economy grow. This is before neoliberalism within a Keynesian framework. So if I think about what should a public university's responsibilities to a public be, then I think we need we need to think about well, where does the maintenance and care of these technologies come from. Um, and what kinds of solidarities can we find with others who might be interested in investing, not just in mention, but in maintenance and care? Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thank you. Um, and I think we wanted to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about sort of ethnography as a method. Um, because your training is in, your PhD is in informatics, um, and you're currently in the Department of Communications at, at UCSD, but you do have training in ethnography, um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how ethnography is or is not a useful methodological tool for you as someone who's not working directly within the discipline of anthropology, um, and particularly with regards to how ethnography um, is or is not a helpful tool in your research on design? So, you know, in my training in design, there are lots of methods people write about for how to engage people, potential users or communities or institutions to understand the habits and workflows and politics of those institutions or groups of people and how to make a design that aligns well with those rhythms of life. Um, there's participatory design and action research, um, value-sensitive design, lots of different methods. But I feel like ethnography gave me a sense that any of those methods are contrived stagings of human relationships. And that with a system like Mechanical Turk, I mean, none of those methods really immediately seem to make sense because you have a system where you can only interact with workers through the Amazon website. You're actually not even supposed to collect information so that you can follow up with them because of Amazon's terms and conditions. Um, the social interactions are really thin. You know, I, we could have gone and tried to be mechanical Turk workers and do tasks and you know, do what the, the typical anthropological image of going to do field work and then learning to work in the fields was. Um, but as a designer, I didn't want to rep I didn't want to learn and replicate the way mechanical Turk was for workers. I wanted to do something that was actually helpful to workers and have that be a starting point of engaging them and also intervening in what seemed like uh, a system that was designed kind of against them. So ethnography didn't give me so much a literal sense of the methods. I mean, I learned the methods of going and doing participant observation and interviews, but at the time I was in the PhD program at Irvine, there was more of a sense of ethnography gave me 
interpretive tools for understanding reflexively the staged kinds of encounters that I'm having with workers, uh, what kinds of power relations and materialities of the interface are making certain kinds of communication possible or not. And then what can I say about that? And what does that tell me about how the larger, this larger culturally mediated world of work is? Uh, that's, that's awesome. Um, so um, you, you've alluded to uh, your, your work in India um, around the relationship between entrepreneurialism and uh, development. Um, and so I was wondering if you could say a bit more about a term that you've used in your work, entrepreneurial subjectivity, um, and how all of this uh, relates to design. Yeah. Um, lots of people are writing about entrepreneurship, and it, entrepreneurship is uh, literally a U.S. Department of State project to promote uh, you know, American values all around the world now. Um, but for me, the way that the work in India and the mechanical Turk work kind of came together is helping me think through, okay, like what kind of person is the entrepreneur? Uh, you know, if you look at design thinking, training workshops, or you look at hackathons, or you go to, you know, startup pitch camps, like the entrepreneur is someone who's supposed to have this bias to action, be optimistic about their capacities to change the world, convince others through that optimism and through their training to invest resources, invest money, invest their labor in their enterprises. Um, and that's the kind of entre like entrepreneur's anticipatory subject. And a lot of people will study that, you know, based, you know, like building on people like Foucault who write about biopolitics and how we became these people who are supposed to multiply enterprises and manage our life as an enterprise. And that's a lot of what my book is about, because the book is about um, efforts to re-articulate the problem of Indian development as a problem of entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship seems like it's really inclusive and democratic because everyone can potentially be an entrepreneur from the very poor to the very rich. Um, and Anya Roy has written about this in Poverty Capital with Microfinance, for example. But actually, in a lot of planning documents, uh, the Indian five-year plans, you see that entrepreneurship becomes a, a rhetorical flourish of state language when liberalization happens and the state doesn't have, is not going to be spending as much on state-led development. And so they need private entrepreneurs come in and join a public-private partnership to build development projects, to build services, to build schools. Um, so the, the language of entrepreneurship in Indian development actually also goes along with the language of outsourcing the work of the state so that private entities are now doing part of the work of governing others. That, that's really interesting. Uh, so we just have one more question, um, and it relates to public scholarship. Um, and I guess we were just interested uh, in if you see the intersection between ethnography and design as useful for public scholarship, and if you feel that that might be especially pertinent now considering the current political climate. Um, yeah, to be honest, I don't personally find design to be a useful idiom for thinking about intervening in 
the world in ways that uh, make all human lives valuable. Um, you know, we have like a Black Lives Matter movement. We've got uh, president-elect who's talking about databasing groups of people, mass expulsions. And I just haven't found myself going, oh yeah, maybe we could design this thing. Maybe we could design that thing. I actually find anthropologists writing about phatic labor, like Julia Eliachar talks about how gossip networks in Egypt are part of how workshops get organized and the thing that NGOs want to tap into to understand social capital. Um, sociologists and anthropologists talk about kin work. Like, how do you build solidarities? Who's doing the cooking? Where do we meet? How, like, I've been finding myself trying to meet the people on campus who also want to protect our students. For example, we have undocumented students. Like, building those relationships, building trust, talking about what our politics are kind of in advance so we're kind of ready as we need to intervene to resist things. Um, to me, it's been a lot less about design and a lot more about building forms of kinship um, in advance of and as part of doing the work of politics, forming alliances around common interests and also the, recognizing that we don't hold everything in common. Um, Marisol de la Cadena talked about that at the co-led conference. She talked about the uncommon. Like, what is it that we have that's not common that we have to work together despite because we're struggling against something in common? Um, yeah, I, I I find all the stuff that design leaves out to be the stuff that I'm trying to pay the most attention and finding the most useful to pay attention to when I'm thinking about me grounded, like, at my campus in California, in the U.S., as a Iranian American. Can I, just as a follow-up, I mean, do you think that design might factor in at some point in terms of ways to build those alliances? I mean, could it play a role, or is that maybe something that uh, uh, wouldn't wouldn't be so helpful? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, part of what I'm saying right now is a reaction to the fact that you know I've been embedded in these ethnography design conversations for almost a decade because I did my PhD work at UC Irvine. So all of the things that I said, I wouldn't even have thought to articulate if I wasn't thinking about the limitations of design. But I think the thing that designers are good at, but are so are sci-fi authors, um, so are certain kinds of activists, is painting a picture of a future that we might want to work towards, even despite our differences. I feel like one of the things that maybe made Trump's rhetoric really powerful was that when he says build a wall, he's not actually saying I want to build a wall, but he's giving a concrete image that provokes all kinds of feelings in people about their frustrations, about who they think the problem is. It kind of does this scapegoating work. Um, and he managed to mobilize a bunch of people around that kind of prototype of a future where we build a huge wall, tapping into class affects, racist affects, the whole thing. Um, I think one of the things I learned from watching designers is designers are actually really good at that. I call it a prototype because designers use prototypes to elicit reactions, to solicit interest, to, to get people beyond, behind something. And they do it using form, and they do it using image, and they do it using color. Um, 
so maybe that's the thing that designers can really contribute is uh, not making politics just about um, interaction across different contests of interests, but also concretizing futures that people can attach to being speculative with a broader range of people in a way that helps people fight for something together. Great. Uh, that, that's super interesting. Um, thanks so much for your time, Lily, uh, and taking out the time to, to talk with us. Um, we, we really enjoyed uh, speaking with you today. Thank you so much. It was really interesting to get to think through this with you and um, seeing where the conversation goes in <laughs> these strange times we're in. Listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. We'd like to thank Lily Arani for taking the time to speak with us, as well as the UC Collaboratory for Ethnographic Design, who gave us permission to record at their conference, and our executive producer, Liliana Gill, who provided invaluable feedback on this episode. If you'd like to hear the previous two episodes of this series, be sure to check out the Anthropod archives. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations around the intersection of design and ethnography, and that you have the opportunity to further look into the fascinating work of all of our interviewees. This episode of Anthropod was produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and you can also find us at cultanth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H dot org. There on the website, you can find out more about this series on ethnography and design and all of our previous episodes, as well as the journal Cultural Anthropology. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at Colanth. I'm Tariq Rahman. And I'm Catherine Sacco. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>